Isn't it incredible when we can worship in multiple languages? What a blessed time of worship today. Thank you for joining us as always. We desire to connect with you. Yes, you very specifically are viewers online and we have an opportunity where we want to give you the opportunity to win an Anthem shirt, to rock Anthem wherever you are. We know there are viewers from around the world and we are prepared to ship this around the world for you. All you need to do is post an Instagram post tagging Anthem at LOUC with a picture of you and anyone that's with you watching Anthem. Pose next to your TV, make it cool. We wanna share with all of the world where you are coming from. Let us know, we wanna know, and in the next couple weeks, we will be picking someone to send a shirt to so that you can rock it in your neighborhood. But we also have some really exciting events coming up that we wanna make sure you know about, especially if you're in the SoCal area. Yeah, one more thing we wanna let you know about uh, our July 31st, we have an album release concert of our brand new album, Universal Hearts. Uh, it's gonna be available on all streaming platforms and uh, you're actually gonna be playing during the con uh, concert, right? Yeah, yeah, I yes, I am. July 31st at 6 p.m. right here in our auditorium. Uh, you can get tickets, uh, we'll link it below. You can go to our Instagram, our Facebook to find tickets and we're just excited to be able to finally release this new music. It's been an amazing journey creating music out of the local church and so we hope that if you are local, you are gonna register for that and be there for that. Uh, finally, we're continuing the series with Pastor Miguel today, Project 242. Um, as we enter into this time of, of, of the sermon and of the ministry that Miguel has taken the time to prepare, I would just ask that you would open your heart and open your mind and open your spirit to receive what the Lord has prepared today. Thanks again for joining us and let's get into the word. Oh, that was, that was awkward. Let's not do that again. You know, silence is, is difficult. And even amidst all that silence, I could hear it. The deafening sound of discomfort. Whether that's a, uh, an amen, wondering if the service will be over already, or a clap, because we're scared that the preacher forgot his message, a nervous cough as you're clearing your throat. What is it about silence that makes us so uncomfortable? We fill this, these silences that we have in time and space with so many superfluous things. After all, it's easier to talk about the weather than it is to address my weaknesses. It's way more comfortable to say fine when the passerby asks me how my week is doing even if my life is in complete flames. And it's simpler to say, happy Sabbath, 
than it is to actually ask you your name or to give you mine. And that's not to say that saying happy Sabbath is a bad thing, but it shouldn't be a placeholder when silence makes us uncomfortable. One of my favorite things throughout our return to church is just spend some time going from seat to seat and chatting with some of you. And in our first service, those bite-sized interactions sometimes are filled with just a teensy-bincy-wee of awkwardness. So somebody two weeks ago looked at me and I shook their hand and he peered into my soul, his eyes just burning a hole in me. And he asked, who cuts your hair? (laughs) And then he proceeded by saying, and how do you keep it so And I thought that was a compliment. (laughs) It wasn't. So, in the spirit of courageous confession, I'm gonna share something with you. This is my buddy. It's called Gorilla Snot. And that's what keeps my hair mm. And the truth of the matter is, Sometimes sharing something so superfluous doesn't really require that much vulnerability, does it? I mean, it's, really, it's rather simple to say and to do. While we were recording during the pandemic, I mentioned that my one guilty pleasure was chocolate bars. And the very next week, Somebody from this community packaged up a box of chocolate bars and placed them in my office. Whatchamacallits. If you don't know what a whatchamacallit is, you're missing out. This is what God made fall on the floor in the desert for 40 years and the Israelites ate as manna. And that was a really simple gesture. But in that moment, I felt seen, I felt affirmed, I felt cared for. You know, the author and therapist Brene Brown talking about silence and the courage that we need to employ in order to break it, says that courage begins with showing up. And that it follows with simply saying, I am here. In Anthem community, I've seen it. We are a church that shows up for one another. Whether it's gathering and making some coffee for a friend that is studying and has an all-nighter. Whether it's leaping for joy when you get that acceptance letter, whether it's sharing with your parents the good news that you're finally moving out of your home at 45, (laughs) we show up for each other. 
And I know, I know that some of you came to church today wanting to simply slump into a chair and disappear. Well, sorry, you chose the wrong church to do that. Because here at Anthem, we see you. We're here for you. We care. And we care because we take our marching orders from this book. So, the early church is trying to fill that awkward sound of silence. You know, the one that exists after Jesus leaves his disciples behind. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the believers gathered together and prayed constantly. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that they prayed. After all, the growth and the description of the church, that one idyllic church, the one with beautiful communal tables and shared property, the one Luke talks about in both Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that scene is preceded with prayer. And prayer was the central one conviction that they held as the gospel spread first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, and then to the end of the world. So the question isn't if they prayed, rather the question is what did they pray for? How did they pray? Peter Peter and John were walking around. And they're moving, going to the temple to, oh, you guessed it, to pray. And they see him. Scripture doesn't tell us how long he'd been there. But probably he'd been there so long that he had become invisible to the people that went up to the temple day after day to pray. His hand withered, extended out, hoping for maybe a couple coins, some food, some security. Hoping that somebody would show up for him. Hoping that somebody would see him. Hoping that somebody would care. Peter and John knew that before prayers ascend, pain must be seen. Otherwise, what are you praying for? Peter and John understood that when it comes to prayer, you and I are called to pray persistently. And so they see him, and they start engaging in this wondrous act that is called persistent prayer. Because Jesus had one time told them that when you pray, you actually participate in providence. When you pray, you participate in providence, and perhaps that just flew over your head, so let me punctuate that point. 
Robert Jensen, an American theologian, says that when we pray, what we're actually doing is giving God our advice about how the world should go. When you and I pray, we're actually giving God our advice about how the world should go. And here's a funny thing. God actually listens to us. Now, it's not that prayers cause God to do something that he would otherwise not do. But what is happening when you pray persistently, when you participate in providence, is that through your prayers, you are being invited into the joy of what God is already doing. And the truth of the matter is, Anthem, God is too good to not allow us to share in his goodness. And I know a little bit of sharing. I've got two kids. And sharing's not their forte. So a few weeks ago, we go to this restaurant. And it's a restaurant known for its delicate desserts. And here we are in the blue zone talking about chocolate and desserts. And in a moment that can only be categorized as complete madness, I look at them and I say, you guys can order whatever you want. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> and they brought us a tray. And on that tray was something called chocolate mother load cake. <laughs> and they both dug into it. And when they had it, they looked at me and they say, Dad, you need to try this. And I tried to explain them about, you know, slowing metabolism and <laughs> sugar and healthy living and that Dad's a pastor and his church members are going to critique him if they see him putting this thing in his mouth. And they didn't care. They said, Dad, you need to try it. This is delicious. We just need to share it with you. And that's what the gospel is. You know, that's why they prayed. Because they understood that the gospel was so sweet that they just had to share it. And the way they shared it was through participating in providence by saying, God is doing something new. Anthem, God is doing something new. And you are a charter member of that plan. And if that doesn't excite you, then I don't know what else will. This is a special time you're called to live in. And you might be scratching your head at this point. And you might be saying, well, this idea of persistent prayer and participating in providence and chocolate cake sounds really good, but what does that look like? What kind of prayers are persistent? So I wanna ask you to do something with me today. I wanna ask that you open your Bible. You open your device, or if you have a Bible like mine, just go ahead and open it with me. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. I want you to focus on verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 33 through 31. You see, Peter and John have just finished healing the beggar 
at the gate beautiful. And as almost always happens, when prayer is occurring in a community, persecution soon follows. When prayer is happening in a community, persecution soon follows. And so the Sanhedrin has called Peter and John to appear before them. And what does a community of faith do when they're being threatened? Luke records the first corporate prayer ever uttered by the Christian church. And I want to read it with you its entirety. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And if you've ever read this passage before, you might know that the opening lines of that prayer are a direct quotation from Psalm, the second chapter. And if you've ever read Psalms 2, you will know that Psalms 2 is a song that is asking God for vengeance and judgment. So it shouldn't surprise us, right, that the church is gathered asking God to avenge them, asking God to judge them. Only that's not what they pray for. They pray for boldness. What gives them the ability to pray for boldness? Because make no mistake about it, church, persistent prayers are bold prayers. But boldness can only be born out of intimacy. And the disciples came to their master one morning, and they looked him straight in the eye, and they said, teacher, show us how to pray. Because that's what we do, right? When we have uncomfortable silence, we try to fill it with questions. Teacher, show us how to pray. And Jesus fills that silence by giving them a formula, only two words. Two words that should commence every prayer that you or I ever utter. Our Father. And can you picture that level of intimacy? Our Father. In essence, Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling you, he's telling me, you can now take my place. Because of all of us, only Christ can call God Daddy. 
And now he is saying, I want you to have that level of intimacy that you now are able to say, Daddy. And I know about intimate speeches. Ask that lady right there. I won her over by writing poetry. Actually, I was plagiarizing poetry. (laughs) One of my favorite poems to recite to her was Sonnet 17 by Neruda. If you are single and want to be single no more, learn Sonnet 17. It'll fix all your romantic problems. Because Sonnet 17 goes a little like this. I love you in this way because I know no other way to love. No other way but this. Where you are not, nor am I. Where your hand on my chest becomes my hand. And when I close my eyes, you dream. I told you to fix all your problems. And this level of oneness, of intimacy, of closeness, is what God is desperately trying to convey to you. But it's not an individual boldness. It's a joined boldness. It's a together boldness. It's a boldness born out of intimacy. You see, the biggest lie that we've been sold by those who claim individualism is that boldness comes from without. That if you learn this program or if you follow these steps or if you master this workshop, then you will be bold enough to make these decisions that will make your life better. The disciples knew, however, that boldness doesn't come from within, it comes from without. And that boldness is the direct gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they prayed boldly. And the beauty of these bold prayers is that as they prayed them, they recognized That prayers like this are able to link your world with God's world. The French 19th century theologian, Auguste Sabatier, probably says it best when he states that to pray is to bring to God the miseries of man in order to bring man the hope and the comfort from God. And so we're linked, we're connected, we're conjoined. We are praying bold prayers because we have understood that the power of prayer is the power of the church. It shouldn't shock you then that a mere eight chapters after this scene, James has been beheaded, and Peter's in prison. And here again, you have them. Slaves, invisible members of society, forgotten individuals, people who have never had anyone show up for them, people that are constantly grappling, attempting to fill that silence with some sort of meaning. Here they are once again 
They're huddled together. And Acts chapter 12 says that their response to the imprisonment of Peter was constant prayer. Because prayer is the power of the church. And when you pray, when we pray in this level of intimacy, we, seek, we cease to be individuals and we become altars. We become these fleshy altars where needs, my needs, your needs, our needs, meet resources, people who show up, people who care. So they're praying. And they're praying desperately. And then they're interrupted. My knock at the door. So Rhoda, who's a slave, runs to the door and asks, who is it? Peter. And she turns around and runs back into the house without opening the door. And she goes and she tells the people that are praying for Peter that he's here. Here's the good news. Mom, you who continue praying for your child, asking for him or her to come back to faith, God has already answered that prayer. Dad, you who continue struggling, trying to figure out how you're going to make it every month, God's already answered that prayer. You who are wondering how you're going to make it through your program, God's already answered that prayer. But what changes when we pray in this way is that life ceases to be about me and it starts to become about we. One of the most fascinating things, however, is that this isn't a new prayer. This idea of interceding for each other, of showing up for each other, of believing that God is already doing something, it's not new. It actually began all the way back in the Old Testament. I wish that as Adventists, we had the courage to recover the doctrine of the sanctuary. And for those of you who don't know what that is, don't worry, I'm going to explain it in a sec. You see, in the Old Testament, when a priest would go into the sanctuary in order to intercede for his people, he had a breastplate. And on that breastplate were the names of each and every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when God is praying at Gethsemane, when Jesus is sweating blood and tears and asking God to pass that cup from him, he's got your name on his lips. He's got your name written on his heart. And when the early church, a mere couple weeks after this, is praying for Peter, it's with someone else's name on their lips and on their heart. See, the secret of prayer is to start thinking whose name, whose name needs to fill the silence in my life? 
Whose name ought I to place on my lips? Whose name does God want me to write in my heart? It happened in 1942. Leo Baranek was trying to develop a better system of speakers. This was 1943, after all, they needed to find a way, find a way to convey instructions and orders to soldiers landing on fortified beaches. Berenik, as an engineer, understood that the only way that he could do this was if they started from a baseline in order to figure out how sound waves travel in different environments. And so Berenik decided to build an anechoic chamber. What is that? That's a chamber without any sound. So they, tra- they bring in seven trainfuls of fiberglass and they place them just so in that big cement box to deaden any echo. And John Gage heard about Berenik's chamber. Gage was a composer. He was a composer who was taught music by his aunt, even as she also taught him how to play. She taught him that a radiator could be an awesome instrument if you had the right stick to hit it. She taught him that you could play screws and tools inside a piano to make it sound differently. And Berenik was obsessed with this idea of sound and music, and so he wanted to hear the complete sound of silence. And so he stepped into the chamber. And as he closed his eyes, he was disappointed because he heard two sounds, two frequencies, one high and one low. The high one was the sound of his nervous system. The low one was the sound of his blood pumping. And so he came out. And that inspired him to write his most famous musical masterpiece. It has three movements. And it is the only masterpiece, musical piece that I have already mastered. Actually, I've been playing it for you for the past 20 minutes. It's called 433. And the sheet music is bar after bar of rests. The pianist or the symphony rests. And the music is created by the sound of the air conditioning, by the muffled cough in the environment, by the wrestling pages of a Bible, by laughter and tears, by the hope that we have that God will show up and that we can show up for each other. 
And what 433 allowed us to discover is that silence is just a construct. God is already doing something. God is never silent. God is always moving. But if we pray persistently, if we pray boldly, if we pray courageously, then we get to participate in that symphony. And so you might be wondering, how do I do that? We've been giving you several challenges throughout the weeks, and this is your homework for this week. I want you to think about a name. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a spouse. I want you to pray for somebody that God is placing in your heart. And I want you to spend this week interceding for them. You see, when God is present, When God becomes part of the symphony, a whatchamacallit thing happens. And I know, I know that it's kind of awkward to step up to someone and say, hey, at Anthem, we're praying for you this week. I know it's challenging. So here's what I'm going to do. If you commit to praying for somebody, in the foyer, we've got a whatchamacallit for you. It's not for you to eat. It's for you to give to that person you are praying for. And as you stretch out your hand, won't you tell them, I'm part of Anthem Church. And in our church, we believe. We believe in praying persistently. We believe in praying boldly. We believe in praying courageously. Epling Raincutty, a professor at Southern Seminary, says that to be a Christian is to have a sense of being prayed for. So I want you to know today that we are praying for you, but I also want to invite you, won't you pray for someone else? Won't you allow God to do a whatchamacallit thing in your life. What an amazing word. I hope you were as moved by it as we were that were here in person experiencing it. I want to remind you that there is a tangible way that you can give back, that you can be a part of this movement, of this ministry, of this gathering, even if you are not here in SoCal, and that is by continuing to financially support us. We want to say thank you because you have been financially supporting us. Mm. You have been there, you have supported, you have given us the resources needed to continue doing what we're doing, both online and in person, so thank you. For those of you that are ready to jump on board with that, that are not already committed, we wanna let you know the two easy ways. You can text LLUC to 77977, or jump on the LLUC website, lluc.org forward slash give, and give those two easy ways. I believe there is even reoccurring giving available if you just want to make it an easy transition. And again, we could not be more grateful for your support, especially during this time as we continue to grow and spread the gospel through ministry here at the University Church and through Anthem. And we also want to stay connected with you so you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Anthem, uh, 
by L-O-U-C, at Anthem by L-O-U-C. You can follow everything that's happening. And hey, if you're in the SoCal area, we would love for you to come check us out. Uh, be in person, worship with us in person every Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. And then also online, 10.30 a.m. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks for watching.